0: The old skin that is most difficult to shed is our core belief that something is wrong with us, that we are deficient or flawed. In my work with meditation students and clients over the last decades, I've seen how this belief has stopped people from having intimate relationships, generated ongoing anxiety and depression, fueled addictive behavior, and caused harm to their loved ones. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche writes, The snake that cannot shed its skin perishes. To flourish, we need to release the belief that something is wrong with us.
1: That was Tara Brock, reading from her new book, Radical Compassion, Learning to Love Yourself and Your World with the Practice of RAIN. I'm James Shaheen. Welcome to Tricycle Talks. Tara is a clinical psychologist and meditation teacher who has been at the forefront of blending Buddhist meditation and therapeutic methods. She is also a best-selling author, the founder of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., and the host of a wildly popular meditation podcast. Tara is perhaps best known for her teachings on radical acceptance and RAIN, an acronym for a method for applying mindfulness to difficult emotions. In her latest book, she focuses on using RAIN to cultivate compassion, beginning with compassion for ourselves. She says that most of us are living in a trance of unworthiness and are addicted to self-judgment. In this episode, I sit down with Tara to discuss how we can use RAIN to break this addiction by becoming more aware of our reactions and learning to loosen our identification with our feelings. Tara Brock, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Totally. My pleasure. Okay. So
1: let's start with the title of your book, Radical Compassion. Could you say a little bit about what you mean by that? You wrote a book called Radical Acceptance, and now we've got Radical Compassion.
0: Yeah. Well, compassion feels like the medicine we need individually and as a culture, and the word, I guess, there's a number of people that are trying to bring the word alive again and because it can so easily be this kind of abstract, kind of mushy word. So radical compassion, the roots of compassion, are really nurtured when we're mindful and embodied. In other words, you can't really feel compassion if you're not in your body and feeling some tenderness in your heart. So radical compassion has kind of a training on how to get into our bodies and really feel our hearts directly. And then the expression of it is active caring. It's not a, a passive caring. It's actively wanting to help. And the other expression of radical compassion is it's all inclusive. It's really mm-hmm. widening the circles all the way.
1: And the primary method you use in the book uh, is RAIN. For our listeners who don't know what RAIN is, can you tell us what that is?
0: So RAIN is the spiritual technology of compassion, and it's a four-step, very accessible and powerful tool that even when we're really caught and mixed up and confused and forgetting how to come back into presence, it it helps us come back and reconnect with our hearts. So RAIN is an acronym and the R of RAIN is to recognize, which means we recognize what's going on inside us right now. And the A of RAIN means allow, which doesn't mean we like it, but we let be. We are willing to pause and just let it be there. And the I of RAIN is investigate. And it's not a mental investigation as much as investigate in our bodies, let our awareness come in and contact what's there in a very somatic way. And then the N of RAIN is nurture, which is where we actively bring care to what's going on inside us. And then... Just like in a real rain, after the rain is when we actually see things blossom. Similarly, after those four steps, there's a resting and awareness, a sensing of the natural presence that's there. And there's this amazing thing where we start getting that we're, let's say we started rain and brought it to fear, we're no longer the fearful self. It's like we have opened up our sense of being and realize we're beyond that. And so after the RAIN is that resting in awareness and realizing that shift in identity.
1: Okay, so can you take fear or anything else and walk us through how you might apply each step in RAIN?
0: Sure. I'll give you um, an example from my own life. This was some years ago. My mother moved down to Washington area to live with me and my husband, and she was 82 at the time. And I was in one of those super busy, you know, just trying to meet deadlines kind of things. So I felt this mix of guilt that I didn't have as much time as I wanted with her and also anxiety about getting things done. And I remember one day she walked into my office with a New Yorker article she wanted to show me and I barely looked up from my screen. I was, believe it or not, writing a talk on loving kindness. <laughs> you know, I, You know, I just was immersed in it and anxious about getting it done. And she saw I was busy, so she just put the article down. But as she was walking out, I got this like aching feeling in my heart, like, oh my gosh, I don't know how long she's going to be around. And so I decided to do RAIN and feel my anxiety and do it with anxiety. So I'm just going to walk you through how I did that, which was I got still, and I felt the kind of tightness in my chest that is really leaning forward, trying to get to the next thing, check things off the list. So I just kind of named it and recognizing is kind of a naming of what's going on. Okay, anxious, anxious. The A was just a pausing with it and letting it be there, not trying to change it or make it go away or anything like that. And then as I investigated, underneath the anxiety there was this belief that I would let people down and I'd fail in some way if I didn't get everything done just right. You know, I needed to, this is what I needed to do in order to be okay person, in order to have people feel like I did what I promised. So underneath that anxiety was that belief. And then when I got in touch with that, there was that, a sense of a real twisting and ache in my chest. And I asked that place, well, what do you most need? And that's a really important question in investigating. Like, what do you need right now? How do you want me to be with you? And it needed me to accept that it was there and just reassure that there's not real failure around the corner. There's just whatever happens. And that um, my intention and my presence would carry it. It's, you know, things are okay. It just needed a reassurance from a more mature part of my brain, (laughs) you know, It was a shift from limbic to my, you know, frontal cortex. So I put my hand on my heart as I'm actually doing right now, James, as we're talking. Mm -hmm. And just said, it's really okay, you know, you're not going to fail. You'll do however you do. It might not be perfect, but it's okay. And there's something in the, this is the nurturing of rain. There's something in that tenderness and from really coming from a larger, more awake part of my heart. It's like my big heart to my little heart, you know, that um, calmed me down. And then I just sat quietly and there was kind of a sense of just an expansion where I was just more in beingness. i no longer the busy self that didn't have time for her mother. I wasn't the guilty self. I was just resting in a kind of a heart space that was enlarged. So I did that reign with anxiety a lot during those first months with my mother around and I found I started loosening up. You know, it's like it was before I was doing it, I had this sense whenever we'd have meals together that I was waiting to get back upstairs and work, you know. But I just started hanging out more and we'd go for walks on the river and when, we'd, when I'd take her to doctor's appointments, I wasn't counting the minutes. And So just to fast forward a little, you know, a few years later when she died, I remember having this really deep sense of, um, of course, grief, but also that I just didn't have those regrets because I felt like um, we had had so much intimacy. And, you know, a lot of people tell me of all this, you know, in my podcast and so on, that beyond anything, rain they tell me, rain saved my life, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think of it like rain saved my life moments with my mom.
1: You know, when I read that part in the book, because it does appear in the book, Uh, I felt some regret myself. It took me a bit to realize that that's what I was feeling, but I think of the people who are no longer in my life where I might have spent time with them when they asked for it, but I simply wasn't available for a number of reasons, some legitimate, some just self-preoccupation. So say something about regret because I I did the best I could. On the other hand, it's interesting to me, you mentioned uh, you had no regrets, but can you say something about regret because we all seem to have them?
0: We all do. Because inevitably, we go into a trance, you know, we, we forget what matters. And when we're in a trance, we're leaning forward and operating out of our fears and our anxieties and our worries. It's like that palliative caregiver I often talk about who sat with thousands of people when they were dying, and she said, the greatest regret of the dying was, I didn't live true to myself. I didn't live from my true nature. It has that feeling, and I think that's true for so many of us, that in day-to-day life we can be at the end of a day and look back at the day and ask, well, did I stay aligned with my heart? And we know we get caught. We just get caught in reactivity. RAIN is simply an applied mindfulness practice. It applies mindfulness to difficult situations to awaken our compassion. But the gift of these practices... Is more moments become real life where we're actually feeling aligned. And um, I know for myself that if I do some sort of reflection of if I was at my the end of my life looking back, what would be important about these moments? Like right here, these moments having this time with you. It would be that I get out of some idea of we're doing some formal role or project or piece of work, and it would be in some way coming into the realness of hearts and beings being here. That's, at the end of my life, what would be more important. And if I can even go through that exercise in my mind, then right here I am talking to you and actually feeling it. So it's so valuable to keep remembering we don't have that long.
1: Right. You know, there are two things that I'd like to ask about You just said, for instance, trance, and you use living below the line as a phrase in the book. Tell us a little bit about what being in a trance means.
0: Well, the living below the line, it's an image that Joseph Campbell gave that I think is super useful. And he talks about awareness as this big circle, and there's a line going through it, and everything that's above the line is in our awareness, and everything below the line is outside of awareness, and when we're below the line, we're in a trance. We're just not connected with the whole of who we are. That's when we get that limbic hijack where we're, we're living inside the fearful self or the greedy self, but we're forgetting, we're forgetting the sense of belonging to the whole. And so meditation really brings us above the line. Meditation wakes up mindfulness so that we see what's going on that we didn't see.
1: Okay, and the other thing you mentioned was living true to yourself. Can you say something about that?
0: Yeah, and it's a great one for Buddhists because true to what self, you know? <laughs> right. And so I would almost reword it and say living true to our awakened heart-mind, you know, our real potential. You know, I often guide people in meditations that, where I, it's really a way of saying taking refuge in Buddha nature, where I'll say call on your high self or your future self. And what I mean by that is the being who you are when you're really awake. It's like, what is it like when awakened heart-mind is expressing through this body right now? What is that like? And it's a valuable way to direct attention because we get caught in an identity that's smaller than that. And it reminds us of who we are, how we can be, when we're um, just more awake, more conscious, and more free.
1: You also talk a lot about being addicted to our own self-judgment, which is a pattern that holds us back. How do we let go of self-hatred? You're very direct about this. Um, How is it that we give ourselves a break?
0: Well, thank you for the question. (laughs) (laughs) I love it because I'd say that, uh, you know, ever since I first started becoming aware of my own suffering, I could link that suffering to I don't like who I am and I don't like how I am. And that was really early on in my teens. I started noticing it, but it's really what got me to write Radical Acceptance. And um, for me, that sense that I call the trance of unworthiness, which is in some core way we're flawed and that in every relationship we're falling short and we're not enough, that, that sense of not enough. It is the most pervasive suffering. With most people I meet, there's some deep down sense of not okay. And so that became to me the primary place to come above the line. To notice is the first step. What we can become really aware of no longer contracts our identity. The reason I call it a trance of unworthiness is because most people, if I'll ask a large group of people, Do you think you judge yourself too much? It's like everybody will raise their hand. But what most people don't realize is that in any given interaction or setting, on some level, that filter of how am I doing, not doing so well, and the gap between how I should be doing and am is a sinking feeling, and it gets in the way of being spontaneous, it gets in the way of enjoying, it gets in the way of our full intelligence, and we can't love without holding back. We end up holding back because we don't trust ourselves. So the trance of unworthiness has been a real central theme throughout for me. Right. And so my path for myself was how can I begin to really see and trust the goodness that's here? How can I begin to arouse a quality of compassion towards this suffering? And so I started off with that in, in radical acceptance. And radical compassion actually offers to me the most well-developed tool It's so powerful to begin to sense where the suffering is and have these steps to really contact it and then find these different ways of self-nurturing that can be so healing.
1: But why do you think it's so difficult for us to offer ourselves that compassion or, for instance, loving kindness? I mean, the first time I went on a loving kindness retreat, I I did it under pressure from Sharon Salzberg, (laughs) and I was averse to it. It was very, very difficult meta-practice for me in the beginning. Why do you think it's such a challenge for us to offer ourselves compassion?
0: That's really one of the deepest and most important questions. Like, how come it's so pervasive that we don't like ourselves? And then the given is that if we don't like ourselves, and then we're asked to offer ourselves love or compassion, it amplifies that sense of, I don't deserve it, something's wrong with me, and aversion. So how come we don't like ourselves is really the question, and it comes out of fear. I mean, we have a very fear-based society and it's the messages we get are, here are the standards to meet, you know, to be a good person. And it's a very competitive society. And it's very individualistic. There's no natural ways of belonging. It's not like assume that we belong. We don't belong to the earth or to tribes or to community. It's, you have to meet these standards to belong. You have to be attractive, be intelligent, You know, and in this culture, be white. You know, it's really like Toni Morrison says, you know, everybody else has to hyphenate, you know. So we don't have natural ways of belonging. And what that means is that if we don't meet the standard according to ourselves or our parents, and most of us were criticized, we feel something's wrong with us. And that's very deep because for humans who need to be part of the clan. Having something wrong means that you're going to be banished. I mean, it goes deep to our survival mentality. There's deep shame and deep fear with it.
1: Or it could mean that you have to buy something to be okay. There
0: you go. It feeds the culture. Exact. It feeds exactly the commercialization of our world.
1: Right. So how do you see this problem of self-judgment and self-loathing or self-hatred? Uh, how do you relate that to addictive behavior?
0: Well one of the things we do when we don't like ourselves is try to soothe it. Like not liking ourselves and feeling afraid that we're going to be rejected ends up creating an agitation in the system. So in my book, True Refuge, I called these false refuges, not because they're bad, but because they don't really work, which is that we all have strategies to try to soothe and control our our system, to regulate our own system. And I sometimes think of it like we come into this world and it's a challenging world. So we put on a spacesuit, you know, and the spacesuits our ego and it needs to be there. But it also has all sorts of super defensive and aggressive modalities to help us get through. And because it's such a tough world, we need our spacesuit. The suffering is we get identified with the spacesuit and we forget who's looking through. We forget the the purity and the innocence and the awareness and the love that's looking through, that's aware. So the spacesuit we get identified with is basically this ego structure that deep down we don't like. (laughs) So it's not our fault, these are our coping strategies, but then we don't like ourselves for our coping strategies. And to loop back to your question, James, you said, how come so much addiction, that's a primary coping strategy? We try to use, whether it's substance or addicted to our angry thoughts or whatever it is, sex or just buying things, we do it to soothe ourselves because our nervous systems are so jangled and because we're so deep down afraid of not being okay.
1: You know, when I think of RAIN, I think at the center of it really is it's informed by meditation, I believe. Is that correct?
0: Oh, RAIN, rain is applied mindfulness.
1: Right. So you've done something different with RAIN, the N, non identification, which originally was, I believe, becomes nurturing. Why did you make that switch?
0: Yeah. So Michelle McDonald, who's a wonderful teacher, was the first one to bring this acronym to our world. And for many of us, it was a wonderful acronym. And I also had students, and in my own experience, have some troubles with it. And one of the troubles was there wasn't an active step of compassion. And what most of us have found is when we hit emotional tangles, we need an explicit and direct way to awaken compassion. That's part of the healing of it. It actually softens us so we realize we're not separate. And the end of RAIN, the way it was when it was first introduced, non-identification, people would say, well, how do you do non-identification? <laughs> and I would say, well, it's not actually a step. It's actually the realization that comes out of the steps. So you recognize and you allow and you investigate and then there's a realization of non-identification and in Buddhism you can put it either way. You can say not identified as in empty of selfness or you can sense it as therefore including everything. It's like Srinur Sargadatta said, you know, love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing and between the two my life flows. So that is the gift of rain. But I found that people had a much more powerful experience when they put nurture in at the end of the active steps, the compassion, and then rested in awareness. And that's when the spontaneous realization of, oh, there's been a shift in identity, no longer identified with that, you know, scared self or shamed self, resting in this sense of wholeness and freedom.
1: You know, it's not so much that I am that frightened self; rather, that frightened self is simply there.
0: Exactly right. It's um, the metaphor I like is: there's all these different waves of fear and anger and hurt and excitement and whatever, and we have certain set of waves that we habitually identify our personality and self with. And when we do rain, we come back to realizing our oceanness. And there can be a cherishing of the waves, there can be a sense of humor about the waves, there can be a love of the waves, but we realize our vastness and our mystery and that we're not exclusively identified with any small set of them.
1: You know, I I go back for a moment to what I said about my first meta retreat. A lot of people, especially men, uh, respond to centering this language of tenderness and self-compassion they respond to what poorly say, or they prefer a more stoic approach. Um, have you gotten pushed back in that way? Because you seem pretty tough to me, actually. Uh, so could you say something about people's response to centering tenderness and compassion and self-care?
0: I think it's a fantastic question because our challenge in the world is um, the male identity that is fed by this culture keeps men thinking they need to be aggressive and eat meat and look strong and that there's a danger in being sensitive and that's you know threatening our world so it's a fantastic question. Corzolino is a evolutionary psychologist and he said that evolution is not survival of the fittest it's survival of the nurtured and I think more and more people are recognizing that what are the two things a child most needs? Well they need to be seen, in other words, there needs to be that mirroring of I I see you, I get you, and they need to be loved for what is seen. And that's that's real nurturing, is to offer that mirroring and offer that love. And I think more and more people are getting that when they're suffering, they need spiritual reparenting, you know, it's like in some way they weren't seen and they weren't loved. And so that there's some intelligence in being able to offer a kind attention inwardly, but I think language has to be varied and the pathways have to be varied for different people. For instance, the end step, nurture, even though rain sounds like a simple thing, here's four steps, there are so many different pathways that I work with people on, on how to nurture. And by way of example, I often invite people to put their hand on their heart. Some men don't want to do that, but they actually don't mind putting their hand on their belly, Hmm. you know, which is interesting. And it's just a sense of contact and centering and knowing, okay, I'm with myself. I invite people to use messages, you know, send a message of care. For some people it could be something like, it's okay, sweetheart. For some men it might be, this belongs... Which is a really powerful message. I, I worked with one man and he felt very, you know, angry. His boss was a woman who was actually very unfair and so on. He was really angry. And he would just say, he would just put his hand on his belly and say, This belongs, this anger. And not get caught up in the storyline, but then he could get underneath the anger and feel a sense of, you know, the hurt that he was feeling, that he was being treated that way, and then relate it back in time and then find out that what he needed, that was the investigating the hurt. And then find out what he was needing really was the sense of that you belong, you know.
1: Right. For me personally, I found that underneath all that aversion to self-care, or self-compassion, was a lot of fear, you know, a lot of perceived weakness. and And so it was very helpful to actually finally do it.
0: That's the whole deal, is that if you can stay with it, it's like one sage, so I love this, that one sage, people go and, you know, bring all their different troubles, and he'd swear them to secrecy, and then he'd give them one question, and his question was, what are you unwilling to feel? Right. What are you unwilling to feel? And it's if we stay with it, if we stay with that aversion, we often get down to fear, and then if we can learn to stay with that and bring a kind and clear presence. On the other side of that fear is the space, and I think of it as a heart space, that really can include it. And that's the fearless heart. It's not that fear is gone. It's just that we're the ocean again. We have room. Right. Yeah. You're listening to
2: Tricycle's editor and publisher, James Shaheen, in conversation with Tara Brock. Author of Radical Compassion, Learning to Love Yourself and Your World with the Practice of Rain. Have you ever wondered what the purpose of mindfulness really is? In Tricycle's online classroom, you can now join beloved meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg for a new six-part course, The Whole Path, Kindness, Meditation, and Wisdom. In this course, Sharon explores the nuances of key Buddhist practices and explains how they can allow the mind and heart to open to the Buddha's transformative wisdom. The whole path starts March 23rd. Tricycle Talk's podcast listeners can receive a special $25 discount when they sign up with the code TRIPOD25. Enroll now at learn.tricycle.org. Now, Let's return to James Shaheen in conversation with Tara Brock. I'd like
1: to bring this to the here and now. We're living through some pretty difficult times, particularly politically, and I'm wondering how RAIN might apply here.
0: It applies in the same way as it applies to any other tangle, let's say with race We're all below the line to some degree on race in this society. You cannot be in a society where um, people were enslaved and the way we've treated African Americans in this country and had our history and not be below the line. So every one of us, if we want to wake up and be free, has to intentionally pay attention to unseen bias. And it comes up, over and over again. I'll give you an example from my own life. And this, again, is in the book. And um, it was one of those kind of life-changing things for me, where I was in a meeting with a multiracial group. And I said that I needed to take some more time off because of illness. And an African-American woman really objected and challenged my commitment. And I had felt like I was being vulnerable and disclosing. And I'd been really committed. But she felt like you know she was really angry at me and i did reign with that and i you know recognized and allowed okay i'm i'm angry and i'm hurt and i got underneath that and felt really that sense of being unseen and not cared about by her and others like how could how could she be blaming me when i'm sick kind of feeling and um and then i kept on investigating and feeling, well, what, what I need right now? And I just needed to feel a sense of what I sometimes call the beloved caring. So I put my hand on my heart and I just felt care coming in and I offered myself care. And I felt more balanced and larger. And then I was able to look at her through different eyes. It's like once I had nurtured my inner life, And I had a conversation with another African-American friend who really helped me to see this woman differently too. And she basically told me this. She said, Tara, for you, it's voluntary, this commitment. For her, it's life and death, this work we're doing together for racism. And that just reminded me of, you know, her grandson in jail and how she really felt like all the boys on the streets that were being shot at were her children. And it's it's so Rain helped me be less identified with my small, hurt, vulnerable self, and more if I could be compassionate with myself, then I could see her through um, more wide open eyes. And it did another thing, James, which is that I kept practicing with Rain. And some weeks later I was on a vacation and my husband and I were taking a swim. And we swam out to this island and I was like at my best. I, was, I felt like I was moving through the water like a world-class athlete, graceful and strong and so on. It was just great. Coming back, I was just a loser. Like I just was exhausted and my body was off balance. and It was just terrible because I realized I had been carried out by the currents and I was going against the currents coming back. And RAIN, this practice of RAIN and keeping on looking at unseen bias, it just clicked that I am being carried by currents as a white and you know upper middle class or whatever it is person in this society. And that my friends that I am getting more and more involved with, with you know, anti-racism, anti-racism work and so on, going against the currents. And so RAIN helps. We need to do Rain in talking with each other. In other words, take care of our own inner life, you know, come into as much presence as we can. But then we can use rain to look at another person. So I can look at you and recognize and allow whatever I'm most picking up from you and bring that same mindful investigation, because investigation is not just our inner life, it's comprehensive. To, okay use my mirror neurons. What's going on for you? And then bring that same nurturing and care to you. So it's meant to be a relational process.
1: A lot of us get caught up right now watching American political life unfold, and we all get caught in different places. Is there a particular place where you get caught? I'm sure you're dealing, watching all of this with interest and engagement. Where is it difficult for you?
0: Well, first I'm going to name confessionally and truthfully. It's really difficult and I get pretty hooked in a lot of the time and there's a sense of anger and outrage and righteousness and I make bad other. My mind creates others into the enemy. I guess what I can say is that I'm actively working with that because I know that the healing of our world is to bring that above the line and to be able to move from bad other to realizing our shared belonging. So I have a kind of meditation I do. I started this back when we attacked Iraq. I was feeling all this outrage of us about to attack Iraq and you know, realizing that you know, how much suffering was going to come out of that. And I started a newspaper meditation that I now do in a different way because I don't read the newspaper. I'm more online or listening to podcasts. But um, I'll pause and I'll feel the anger and outrage and this is rain, I'll recognize and allow it, and then I start to investigate, and I find that under the anger is fear. And if I stay with it, really stay with it, then under the fear is grief. And if I stay with that, and I can feel it now because I've got in my mind so much that's right, very, very current with our world, and I feel that grief and open to it, then I come into the place of caring. And if I can speak... And act from the caring place, then I'm part of the healing. But if I go around in my unreal othering, you know, this bad othering, then I'm just perpetuating exactly what I'm most upset about.
1: So in the book, you talk about inviting Mara in for tea. Now, Mara in Buddhism is the great tempter, the devil, the seducer. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, it's kind of like that sage saying, what are you really unwilling to feel? Our tendency when we're angry or hurt, um, our first reflex is to move away from it. And part of the reason that we're in such a struggle as we are in this world right now, so I think of it as this, it's not my language, by the way, but this culture of contempt. And that word really gets to me, contempt, that, that mix of disgust and anger, where um we're actually people living in very different realities and being fed different realities and really really again bad othering others we're so caught in it that um we we need an active pathway of working with it and if we do our default of continuing to believe the story of bad other and staying in our contempt we're avoiding actually what's under it so it really comes to what I was just mentioning that kind of unlayering with rain where we say okay this is what I'm feeling, and I'm feeling it towards this person, and I'm really, you know, angry and outraged and hostile, and being willing to pause, recognize and allow, investigate what we're feeling, bring the nurturing inside, and then sense, how can I respond? And I really think, and this is particularly for us Buddhists, you know, uh, one of my friends says, you know, that that the social activists need to be able to sit on the cushion more and those on the cushion need to get more active, that if we want to be really manifesting our true nature, we need to care and act. And that's really one of the messages of radical compassion, that we really get that the people that are suffering are part of us, that we're not doing it out of some good personhood, (laughs) that we're doing it because... Um, those that are most vulnerable are part of us, and there's no other choice.
1: You know, the book is a lot about saying yes, saying yes uh, to what we're feeling or allowing it to be there and making room for it and recognizing it, allowing it, investigating, nurturing. Is there a time when we say no? I mean, for instance, we see something in the world and we think, no, that's that's not all right. I mean, is this what you're talking about when you're that's talking about That's what I'm
0: saying. Brian? Yeah. Is that... We're saying, yeah, we'll just take a living oh, the example. Reason,
1: the reason I ask is that I don't want it to be confused for passivity.
0: It's and it's not passivity. Um, it's actually the grounds of activism that can make a really a big difference. Uh, one of my friends, Ruth King, says, "Anger is initiatory, but it is not transformational." So we want to be able to respond to our world from our deepest intelligence, and from our deepest heart. And we need to respond, but the question is, where are we responding from? And if we immediately reflexively react from anger, we're just perpetuating the problem. So the point of being able to pause and come home to our feelings, inviting Mara to tea, saying yes to this moment, is so that we can get down from that anger into the place of caring and then respond actively, but from caring.
1: Right. That will help us to avoid burnout, I guess.
0: Actually that's a really good point because um, a lot of people talk about um, compassion burnout but it's actually empathy burnout. And there's a real difference um, in terms of the psychoneurology of empathy and compassion. And empathy means that I can sit here and feel your feelings with you. Compassion means that I am mindfully feeling what's going on which means there's space and balance and I'm not so identified. And if it's compassion, because compassion's grounded in mindfulness, then I can respond from a place of balance and wholeheartedness and not get burned out. And there's actually, it's so interesting, James, that they actually can see in the brain now that if it's empathy, it activates the limbic part of the brain and it's negative emotions and we get wiped out by them after time. If it's compassion, in other words, if it's embodied and based in mindfulness, it activates the frontal cortex and it actually feels good. It's like the feeling of we belong. I want to, I care, and therefore I can act, but not get burned out. Yeah, I mean, I
1: guess that sense of belonging, it's what's so challenging for so many people, that I belong. I mean, I guess you could say by virtue of the fact that I'm here, I belong. That's one way to put it. It's
0: the truth, but at the greatest, suffering is a sense of separation. I mean, when we're living in our limbic brain and we haven't woken up, when we're under the line, the perception of the world is there's a self in here, there's a world out there, I need things from the world, and I'm threatened by the world. And that's the whole cycle of grasping and aversion comes out of that. And as we wake up and we're in a more integrated brain, there's a sense of we— And we still take the precautions we need to take. We still act intelligently. But we can live um, for the sake of the greater good.
1: Yeah, what I find particularly helpful about the practice is that when I lose my equanimity, it's not a sense of failure. Rather, that itself becomes the object of RAIN practice again.
0: Exactly right. You just start exactly where you are. Because rain. people have this idea like they're going to do step one, two, three, four, and then be done often you start investigating and a whole new thing comes up and then then you start raining with that. And that's fine, but it makes it very organic and fluid and creative.
1: Right. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your own personal life in your application of this practice. You do talk in the book about uh, the difficulties that you've experienced a divorce with your husband, telling your son. What tools did you have then to deal with that?
0: Well, I've always had the tools of RAIN without knowing the steps in that kind of a sequence. I mean, when I say always, at the time that I was going through divorce, I was, you know, going to IMS and sitting retreats and and actually I discovered the yes meditation that I talk about often right when I was, um, we were getting divorced and I was at a, probably a 10-day retreat. And I remember really well, I went up there and I had some sort of a flu and I was feeling anxious about the custody arrangements and I was angry at my ex-husband and guilty and worried about my son. It was just a mess. And um, so I sat there having all these messy, yucky feelings coming through and realizing I was in a pure state of aversion. And so I thought, I'm going to try just saying yes to everything. And yes, doesn't mean i like it it just means i'm agreeing to the fact that it's reality <laughs> you know right. this is the actuality so i sat there and i would feel this achy feeling in my head from the sinus congestion yes and people were having window wars at ims you know people that liked it cold would open the windows and and then i'd feel an annoyance at that okay yes annoyed and then i'd feel this this wave of guilt about what was going – yes, to the guilt. And at first it was like I was just slapping on automatically this word and it was kind of entertaining, you know, kept me engaged. And then I found that there was a little more space between – That was already
1: the, recognizing and allow. Yes, exactly right. right. I was yeah. really
0: recognizing and allowing. And then, and then it, things slowed down and I started saying yes and meaning it more. And then it got tender. It was like whatever I was saying yes to, there was – there's a sense of resting in something larger and bearing witness to the waves, but not being so caught in them, which is the point of yes. Yes just says, this is reality. You can either fight it and get more trapped in a separate self, or you can allow it and start relaxing open into beingness. It's, it's a step into beingness.
1: So often we Buddhists are accused of navel-gazing, but you're talking about the exact opposite, preparing oneself to engage— your history with social and political engagement dates back to when you were an undergraduate involved with tenants' rights. How do you think about the relationship between activism and practice, and what role has engagement played in your life and work?
0: Yeah, well, I was on a trajectory. I was, aim, I was in college, and I was aiming to follow my father's footsteps, and I was going to go to Cornell Law School and go into some form of social activism. My parents were both very socially conscious and so on. And then I went to a yoga class and landed up in an ashram instead of law school. (laughs) Um, But what really happened behind the lines was I started, you know, with yoga and meditation. I'd be doing that and then I'd go to one of my leftist radical meetings and people would be making their fists and shaking their fists at the heavens and talking about the pigs and the this and the that. And talk about unreal othering and making an enemy. It It was downright violent energy. And that incongruity, James, that really got me. It was like, we're not going to create the world we believe in by hating people, you know. So I got it very, very deep that we need to change consciousness. And of course, being my personality type, I went and dove really deep. I moved into an ashram and spent the next 10 years doing a pretty intense spiritual sadhana or practice. And since then, I've... Re-engaged in terms of different levels of activism, and I really know that it has to be from a place of caring, of loving life, of caring about our world, not from anger, but it's not to deny the anger. In fact, if I don't let myself feel anger, I don't have the energy and the clarity and the passion to move, but I need to not have that you know lock in. If the button is pressed down on anger and it gets jammed we don't end up acting in ways that really help.
1: Right. You know, we can bring this for a moment to relationships or being in relationship with others. All of the tensions and conflict that we've been talking about, particularly with regard to social and political action, leads us to living with each other. And forgiveness is a key component of that. Can you say how, in your book, rain plays a role in forgiveness?
0: Yeah, To me, one of the most beautiful applications of RAIN is what I call the RAIN of forgiveness. And the given is most of us, when we get hurt, we get armored with blame. And it could be little blame where we're going around resenting somebody in the family for not keeping up their end. Or it can be the big blame where somebody that's hurt us where we're really locked down. And ultimately, we're not free if we're blaming. And we're not happy if we're blaming. And yet, I feel like there's been an unfair thing that's happened in the spiritual world that said forgiveness is good and then had people that have been traumatized try to forgive and get re-traumatized are shamed. And I feel like it's a very organic, gradual process and we really need to respect the pace of it. So I've actually changed the way I teach about forgiveness.
1: Yeah. I mean, forgiveness is the culmination of a process. And what I find when I find it difficult to forgive is something that you say, um, be open to it, or at least have the intention or the willingness to get to that place.
0: That's the whole deal. If your intention is to free your heart, to really not push anybody out of your heart, including yourself, if that's your intention, then that opens the door but to be really respectful of the pacing. And I find that the biggest thing about forgiveness that I feel it's important to convey is that we may need to spend days, months, or decades bringing self-compassion to the wounded place before we can actually open our hearts to the other person. It's a two-step process. We first have to bring care to the wounded place. And then when there's enough healing there, we kind of open and relax into a larger space where we can actually see with the eyes of the heart and see the other person's vulnerability. And one of my favorite all-time metaphor stories is if you're walking in a woods and you see a dog and you go to pet the dog and then all of a sudden the dog lurches at you and its fangs are bared and, and you go from thinking, oh, what a cute little dog to, you know, like bad dog. But then you see its leg is in a trap. And then you shift again and you don't necessarily get close to it because it could bite you. But you get that it's hurting. And the whole deal with forgiveness, whether we're forgiving ourselves or forgiving each other, is when we or others act in ways that we don't like, it's because we're hurting. Now, I know that some people can say, well, what about psychopaths and so on? And yes, there are brain chemistry type things that might lead us to not be suffering and then cause suffering. But for the most part, when people act in ways that we find offensive, they've got a leg in the trap. And if we can see that, our heart gets tender and we might still keep our boundaries in certain ways. We might think that person should go to jail. It doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves. And that's one of the misunderstandings about forgiveness is that all of a sudden, oh, if I forgive you, then I'm letting you hurt me again. It's not that at all. You can forgive someone... And commit your life to never letting that violent act happen again. But the point is to free your own heart means eventually to let go of the blame. It's like when we first get wounded, we have to have that scab to protect ourselves. But we don't want a scabbed heart forever.
1: Right. You associate the ability to forgive with the capacity for joy. What about the capacity for joy? Where does that figure in your work, in your book?
0: It figures in hugely because as much as we get hooked in our suffering, a big part of our suffering is the negativity bias, which stops us from pausing and savoring, and it stops us when we have some sense of of creativity or love or awe. It stops us from pausing and just saying, wow. Let this sink in, we just kind of race over the surface to get to the finish line so a huge part of our training like you can do rain with something beautiful if you're feeling a sense of of awe just and it doesn't have to be some rigid step by step it's like just to recognize and allow wow this is beauty and to investigate by letting your body feel it all the way it's we we don't always allow our body to just just feel that flow of aliveness that comes. And then to nurture really means to absolutely honor that it's here and celebrate it. And we don't do that very much. And we also don't do it with each other. To me, part of joy is to really see the goodness in others, you know, to see the innocence and sincerity and intelligence and dearness of others. And It's a training because our habit is to feel endangered or look for flaws. So being able to mirror back the goodness is pretty much the most beautiful gift we can give another person.
1: That's great. You know, I I just want to say one more thing. A friend of mine who was quite ill some time ago said it took him until the end of his life to see how good people were because... People helped him from every quarter. Mm. He once fell on the street and people were there for him. So his whole view of others changed with that. Okay, so you and Jack Cornfield founded the Awareness Training Institute and the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program to promote mindfulness and to teach others how to teach mindfulness. Can you say something about that?
0: Sure, I'd love to. Mindfulness is so in demand. I mean, everywhere. Um, We're teaching on Capitol Hill now, both House of Reps and Senate. And at Parliament, you know, it's everywhere, um, every institution. And there's a need for teachers. So Jack and I felt, and this is, you know, kind of towards the... We're getting older now, that the best thing we could do is be part of bringing in a new generation of teachers that are really diverse and all over the world. And so we created this teacher training to really um, welcome and invite uh, all types of people that would love to share mindfulness with others um, to learn how to do it. And it's exciting because one of the big understandings is if you really, really want to go deep into anything, teach it. So we have um, currently about 1,500 people in the program, right now in the two-year program... Uh from 50 different countries, and uh, we'll be taking in new applicants early in 2020. And it's a beautiful training. It's primarily online with small groups of people with mentors. So there's like eight people in a group with a mentor. And um, we have two live teaching events during the course. And it's very powerful. People are really loving it.
1: Since you're in Washington, I imagine you know Congressman Tim Ryan. Is that right?
0: Yes. Tim and I have done a few different uh, presentations together, and he's gung-ho. He, and he's actually one of the guest teachers in the program.
1: Oh, great. Um, how do you feel about the growing popularity of mindfulness? Do you think there's any downside to that, or is it overall a positive?
0: Well, both in a way, you know, there's inevitably in our culture, things are going to be used for less than the highest good, you know, and so there's going to be just like with yoga, it's tighten your abs and tighten your butt, you know, kind of yoga. And then there's yoga for enlightenment, you know, it's the same thing with mindfulness. I mean, some people are going to use it to, you know, go ahead and beat everybody and be competitive. And some others are going to use it as a pathway to freedom. I think I have a deep trust that consciousness is evolving, that awareness wants to wake up through these human body minds and other body minds, and that ultimately this is part of evolution, that we're learning to pay attention in ways that free us. So I, ultimately I trust that it's for the good.
1: And I, I had another question. Uh, you talk a lot about shame, and it's not something I mentioned, but it's so debilitating. Can you say something about shame?
0: Well, shame is the core of the trance of unworthiness. It's that basic uh, sense of I'm fundamentally flawed. And again, it's so pervasive in our culture and it's so sad that that's the core belief that filters everything. And I find that we need two things. We need the meditations where we like rain, shine a light on it and bringing the self-compassion. But we also need to resolve and heal from shame in in our active relationships with each other. Because there's something about when I sit here and I share my vulnerability and where I feel ashamed and you do it, we get in a very cellular way. It's not my shame, it's the shame. And that's what happens in 12-step programs when people can talk about their alcoholism. It's one of the reasons that a lot of people are doing RAIN partners now. Where they do reign in partnerships, and I have on my website a whole protocol for it, because they get less caught in some of the emotions that are very self-centered. And I mean by that, that they keep reinforcing themselves inside the vacuum of our own psyche. And when we hear from each other, we start realizing we're in it together, and it actually undoes some of that, that painful isolation and shame.
1: Why don't you tell us the URL for your website so people can go look into that?
0: It's Brock.com.
1: Okay. So, Tara Brock, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, my gosh. It's a pleasure, James. Thank you.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to Tara Brock, author of Radical Compassion, learning to love yourself and your world with the practice of RAIN, here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York City. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.